This is Yuda Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Uh, it appears that the Bennett Lapid plutocracy is collapsing. Right? Uh, it lasted roughly a year. Uh, it's been a while since we've spoken directly about this coalition. But in order to take a closer look at what's been going on politically in our country, I've asked uh, Shammai Siskin to come back on the show. I think what's happening really deserves a proper analysis. Shammai, welcome to the show. Yeah, Yehuda, thank you so much for having me. It's been a while since we were able to, uh, to chat. Uh, yeah, so certainly what's happening in the background, the big topic in terms of politics in Israel is, uh, uh, as you said, the, the, <laughs> the seemingly imminent collapse of the current government. Whether or not they'll uh, have to go back to elections again, that's another... Uh, that's another case. I believe that uh, that there were reports recently that uh, that some of the coalition members were uh, were spotted talking with Likud about possibly replacing the government without elections mm-hmm. should the, should the should the government collapse. Sure, so there's certainly contingency plans going on going on, the, going on in the background. But and there are several parties who know that elections would mean either they're not coming back, they're done, their careers are over, yeah. or they're going to come back with less strength. Right, right, and I think that uh, I think that Bennett's own party is one of those parties mm-hmm. that's that's at substantial risk for that for that happening. Or Gidon Saar. Right, Gidon right. Saar for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that he strategically positioned himself in a less loud position mm-hmm. during this round, so that he would know that if there was any major flack, he his reputation, his political standing wouldn't suffer as much. Mm-hmm. I think that that was a strategic move for him. But uh, yeah, be that as it may, I think that uh, I think that the big that the big movers over here are. Uh, are basically Elkin and uh, and Lieberman because they know that they have the most uh, leverage, the most sway, and the most experience in dealing with Netanyahu, with negotiating with him. So I think that they that they're the ones that feel the most comfortable. But yes, I think that if, should the government fall, I think that it could be a, uh, a pretty devastating blow to Bennett. Mm-hmm. He made it out alive once uh, in a catastrophe when right. uh, two elections ago without making it in. To the government. And that might have and been then, three or four elections ago. There was the first of the four elections where he right, didn't come I meant in at all. Two, I meant two, like, right, <laughs> like two before the last one that produced the current government. Uh, right, so I guess that's three ago. Yeah, without making it in, and now he's prime minister. So how that happened, no one's really sure. But yes, I don't know if he would be able to recover from another uh, from another blow like that. That would be pretty uh, would be pretty hard. Right, yeah. and he might just go to Yeshatid. Like Bennett might just find himself number two in Yeshatid. Wow. Some of his... you, think, you think that that's a possibility? I don't sure. think you, I don't think he would go that far. Really? Sure. Why not? I, I think people were shocked that the fact that he uh, was even willing to sit with uh, with Lapid in the same government was a big uh, novelty. You know, since Bennett entered politics, he's worked very well with Lapid, and I think even from the they both. I think it's just the because they have the mutually shared value that stability is more important than their disagreements. Also, I, there's always been a certain uh, sector of the public that's been stuck between Lapid and Bennett on election day. Yes, yes, for sure. Right. And, for and it's sure. not ideological. Like it, it doesn't, it's not determined by the political lines we're used to thinking in terms of. It's more of them both being kind of young, kind of new, kind of bringing a new style of politics into the Knesset. At least a decade ago, that's what it looked like. And they worked well. I remember they kind of like held Netanyahu hostage in coalition negotiations together when they first <laughs> entered Knesset. I, I think they happen to get along very well, have always worked well together, you know, have overlap, believe it or not, in the public space. Remember, they're, they're both basically, um, look, they've always had voters that wouldn't go near the other. But there's a 
critical mass of people, especially I guess what we would call the kind of westernized modern orthodox, kind of Ranana, maybe a frat, a slice of the national religious public, that's always looked for kind of like a quote unquote sane religious Zionism. Right. 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 And Lapid, uh, for a long time, would stack his Knesset list. Remember, there's no uh, primaries in Yeshatid. It's just Lapid right. picking a list. Right, right, right. And for a long time, he would stack his Knesset list with people who are quote unquote dati, you know, kipot, uh, but, but who are coming from a very, very yeah. Western approach to, to the world, like meaning looking at the world through a very Western lens. Yes, and, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair. And he's always and, and Bennett's the same way. Meaning Bennett was never part of what we'd call like the ideological national religious camp. He's somebody who, you know, modern Orthodox guy from Renana, who looks at the world through the ideological paradigm of the West, uh, understands issues that way. And has always functioned that way in Knesset. I mean, it's not new. This was the case even back when you had people like Yoni Shadbon rebelling against Bennett and his party. Because remember, Bennett was participating in uh, pushing an agenda that hurt the Haredi public. Which was what? I don't remember. This is like going back a few Knessets. <laughs> okay. But no, but there was something where like the Haredi were like Dafka against what Bennett was doing, the Bennett Lapid, you know. Right. I think, I think that I think that the underlying premise of everything that of a lot, I shouldn't say everything, of a lot of what Bennett is trying to do is that his narrative of politics over the over the Netanyahu years, over the Netanyahu decade, or more than a decade, has been that <clears throat> while the country has been controlled by, you know, a quote unquote right wing uh, leadership, it's had to be held hostage to a lot of special interest groups, mm-hmm. whether that's the Haredim or whether that's other people that Netanyahu had to placate. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that one of the things that Bennett was really trying to push forward was to say that we have to be able to focus on the primary issues that everyone agrees are the primary issues on the on the plate. And the the example that you gave just a second ago about how Bennett angered the Haredim, well, of course, Bennett with that approach is going to anger the Haredim. Mm-hmm. Because with the with the with the entitlements laws and the entitlements agenda, that's really the single issue that the Haredi parties tend to tend to push these types of these types of programs. Unfortunately, one of the symptoms of parliamentary politics in general, but especially in Israel, is that every single party, with maybe one or two exceptions, the Likud being one, uh, is essentially a special interest party. They're not coming to the table with like a grand vision of how to run a country. They're coming with like, this is what my people want, and this is the you know the one issue that I'm interested in pushing forward, and to hell with all the other stuff. That's unfortunately the 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 nature of the of of, uh, of what we're coming into. So I think that Bennett, uh, at least his version of the story, and again, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of truth to this, is that he wants to shift that back to something to you know focus on the big issues that everyone can really focus on. And I think that the reform bill, which for some reason everyone's not talking about, the one that they passed last November, was really a great victory in that. That it that it that it touched on a lot of economic issues, a lot of social issues that again everyone could really get on board, and there was a tremendous amount. Of, uh, of support and even issues that the Likud two years ago was bringing up right before COVID, right, excuse me, until COVID, the Likud was also talking about these issues about slashing regulation and uh, import stuff and all this, right? These were issues that everyone was talking about, but they didn't have the political will or the political capital because they were tied to these special interests. They didn't have that capital to push them forward. So now this coalition does because, again, that's what they, you know, signed, signed themselves up for, so to speak. So I don't buy it. No? No, I don't buy it? it. I don't buy it. First of all, I think that even when we're talking about big issues or big issues from Bennett's perspective, I don't think he understands those issues on a deep enough level. The fact that, for example, um, it was on the radio a few months ago that Bennett came back from a meeting in Washington 
with Biden, Blinken, right? And Bennett said at his cabinet meeting that he doesn't understand why Biden seems so um, dogmatically opposed to a Jewish building in Judea and Samaria. Like he didn't get, Bennett didn't understand. Now, remember, did ben, he say he didn't understand because he didn't understand, or did he, he say, I no, don't understand, like rhetorically? I no, don't no, no. He, he, he it, it sounded like he really didn't understand, like he didn't see it coming. He wasn't expecting it. It was a surprise to him. I'm not sure that that's what he meant. Okay, but for, for, for right. the sake of argument, let's that, fine, that, let's go that, with what That's you're how saying. I yeah. took it. And what that says to me, remember, Bennett is also somebody who's positioned himself for years as like the leader of the struggle for Eretz Israel. Yes. Like, and whether it's at the Yesha Council or. Council of Judea and Samaria. Right. Yeah. Or we're talking about uh, just by 2D. Um, that's how he positioned himself. And for somebody who positions himself to the public as the leader of the struggle for Eretz Israel, to not be aware, ostensibly, again, I'm going with what he said, to, but to really be surprised by the American opposition to Jewish building in the West Bank shows me that either he was never really leading that struggle or he was completely incompetent in that role. So that I hear he the underlying not... points that you're making. I understand the underlying <laughs> points. But again, this is, all, this is all based on your interpretation of a certain statement that he made in a press conference. Sure. I, don't, I don't know if we can put too much of that on him. Mm -hmm. Like, is he really surprised? I don't think he's surprised. I mean, you can go back and see news conferences that he's doing when he just entered politics and he's, you know, bashing, uh, you know, Amanpour on CNN and all these people right. for, you know, you know, for daring the question of the, of the legitimacy That's of different. Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria. That's different. Why is that different? It's different because if he's ostensibly the leader of the struggle for Jewish life in Judea and Samaria. And he should understand the political opposition. That's, yes. that's, he, sh that's, he should understand who are the forces standing against him. And if he didn't understand on a deep level that the United States is like bipartisan, right? It's not a Republican thing, not a Democrat thing. That yes, the United yes, States yes. has been consistently the number one opponent of Jewish building in the West Bank. If he doesn't understand that, then he's either been like faking it, he hasn't really been part he's of been that struggle, out. or he's just been yeah. completely incompetent. Yeah. And I think there's room to give him to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume it is incompetence. <laughs> be, be, because I think one of the things that appears obvious to me from Bennett's, you know, year as prime minister is that it's not so easy to run a country. Yeah. And Netanyahu made it look easy, right? Because Netanyahu to a certain extent, knows what he's doing. I've never voted for Bibi. I've never voted for Netanyahu once in my life. But I think Bennett's year as prime minister has made me appreciate Netanyahu more than I ever have. <laughs> right? This is a sentiment that seems to be growing. Yeah. 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 And, and I don't plan to vote for him. But I would like to see some responsible, experienced leadership at the helm. And I don't think that's Bennett. And I certainly don't think it's his coalition partners. And again, I, I don't think Bennett understands the issues of the cultural conflicts in Israeli society between like forces of westernization and Jewish identity. Really? You think he's unaware of oh, that? Oh, I, I think he, he's, given, he's given some of his coalition partners, not just coalition partners, Matan Kahana, carte blanche to go and do what they want. And I hope this is the end of that. You know, the one thing we can trust the Haredim. What to issues do, are Kahana pushing forward? Well, you, whether we're talking you, about Kashrut or Giyur or, 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 or all of those reforms whether it's decentralization 
I just think that uh, all of this appears to me to be coming from a misunderstanding of Jewish identity and the purpose of a Jewish state and, and where we should be going. And I think it seems to just be an adoption of like Western framings of, you know, religious and secular and like this kind of binary and trying to make Israel more. I, and I think that's how Bennett really sees the world and how uh, Matan Kana sees the world. I think that for them, there's this thing called Judaism, which is like a personal religion and, right. uh, you know, and, and it's not a national culture. And there's no, I don't think they see any like clash between their people. You're saying ultimately system. the attempts at decentralizing the religious aspects in which the state is involved to decentralize that, that's ultimately an attempt to separate the, the religious observance from the character of the state. Well, I wouldn't put it in those words, okay. but maybe so something similar. I, I would say it's like the westernization of Israeli society and the watering down of... Decentralizing the, those things is the westernization yeah. of society? Right. Really? Well, first of all, I definitely think in a Jewish state, kashrut should be centralized. In, really? Yeah, for sure. There should be one authority that determines I, what's kosher and what's I, not ideally, kosher? Really? Sure. I'm not a libertarian. No, I understand. I, I, I would just say that, 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 that within... You see, see that's... There's a lot to unpack over here, but I think right. that, I, I mean, we've spoken a lot about the, the utter confusion that we have, that we're still coping with in terms of what it means to have a right. Jewish state. Sure. We talk about that a lot, but ultimately we're dealing with a state that has Jewish trappings and, you know, lights on Hanukkah, but ultimately in its core doesn't really have any, or doesn't, doesn't know, know what it's doing right. at least. Right. right. There's a lot of confusion about that. I would say yeah. that it's confusion. Um, but I would say that within the Jewish experience, again, Torah mm -hmm. is something that's all-encompassing at the personal mm -hmm. level, the familial level, the national level. Sure. So within that, there's there's certainly it's not just room; it's incumbent upon us to make mm -hmm. distinctions between things that are personal observance and mm -hmm. things that are national character, right? Okay. So the Torah has the laws of war, laws of kings, laws of government, right? Those are inherently national things that we should be able to turn to in order to draw on that spirit to characterize what we're currently dealing with. Whether or not I eat, you know, this type of meat or that type of meat, I don't know if that's so, so essential to the character of the national entity that we call Israel. Well, that, that's a longer conversation, but I think also there are a lot of Israelis who, um, it, who are trusting that if they see a tuda, they see a certificate on the wall of a restaurant, they're trusting that it's really kosher. And I think there are also a lot of. This is a different argument that you're making, though. You're saying, well, practically speaking, practically speaking, you're going to you're going to be putting, uh, you know, stumbling blocks in front of people that they're yes. assuming that a certain thing is okay when it's right. really not. And it's also and that's a, that's a that's an okay concern. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I just don't think that it's connected to the national character of the state. I think it is. I mean, look, I personally like I've had many experiences of walking into restaurants and seeing one of these kind of like alternative to dote and just you know apologizing to the owner and just leaving. And, uh, right. you know, that's fine. I think we've right. all had that experience. You know, all all observant Jews have had that experience to one extent or another. And that's fine. Right. I think that I don't think that that's so. But, that's really but like not, but break not type of just thing. because I think it, I could even do that in situations where I think that the Tuda on their wall might be stricter than the official state Tuda. Really? Mean, because for me, part of it is just the opening up of it and that Matan Kahana is trying to push that I'm opposed to. So you're opposed to it because you feel that it's part of a broader agenda. Yeah. I just don't see that, that that that's true. I don't think that okay. this that this is part of a broader. I, I think that other things are. I think mm -hmm. I think that we I think that there are other things that we could both agree on. Like chametz in the hospitals. Right, like chametz in the hospital. Once you're talking about state institutions, it's right. different. Policy within state institutions, that's mm. something very different. Mm. I'm talking about opening up for private endeavors, private businesses, private consumption. I think that it's important to make distinction between these things because 
first of all, we shouldn't uh, box ourselves into a corner where mm -hmm. it's an all or nothing type of situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's also intellectually honest to make these distinctions. There are things that are of national character and there are things that right. are of you know personal. So I think, I think there are yeah. many flaws in the Rabbanut. Okay. I think the Rabbanut has a lot of problems. Yes. And I think the solution to that is to fix those problems and not to create competition or like, uh, or free up kashrut and like kind of allow for like all these different, because uh, okay? what you end up having is people who are really not qualified issuing certificates to restaurants, the average consumer not knowing, you know, the difference between this one and that one. They just see it's this kosher on the wall. Like I know, you, you know a lot of people, I know a lot of people who they just, they want to know it's kosher. They see a certificate on the wall, they trust it. They don't know where it comes from um, and they eat. And I would prefer, there be in a Jewish state a centralized authority that's responsible for telling me that the food I'm eating is kosher. I hear you. You're saying that it should be a function of of an authentically Jewish state that they have such a service that everyone can rely on that doesn't have problems that isn't right. the subject of you know this tremendous criticism that we right and exists. would I and would ideally be a standard that everybody can feel comfortable yeah with. yeah that it could be okay okay I hear that I hear yeah. I do hear the argument I never quite heard it put that way but I can I can I can accept that argument. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you don't mind, I'd really like to segue into this topic that we were talking about before. Sure. You sent me an article before we sat down yeah. about a very intriguing uh, survey that was done right. uh, recently. Yes, in the... <laughs> well, well, well I think Haaretz has this nasty habit of reporting on Israel as if they're not from here, as if they're not part of the exactly, country. Exactly, exactly. They're just like outsiders. Exactly. They're like Europeans critiquing Israel. Yes, yes, correct, correct. And you can see, I mean, you see that in, in all, yes, in every aspect of the, of the publication. Although I do appreciate them that they're that they're willing to call out things when they see them. Mm -hmm. But I think that, unfortunately, it's become quite the uh, quite the ideological bent, meaning that's the reason why they exist, to find issues and, you know, make them seem as bad as they could possibly be. Mm. That's That seems to be the purpose of their being. But this article actually yeah. wasn't so bad. I thought, I thought this one was actually pretty balanced. It was just reporting the facts of this most recent uh, survey. Mm -hmm. And um, so the headline of this article is 60% of Israeli Jews favor segregation from Arabs. Mm -hmm. Now, there's... I think it's, it's low. Clear. I, I, don't, I don't buy those numbers. I you think, think that it's much, much higher, higher. Yeah, right? Much so higher actually, I was, I was perusing through some of the comments over here and someone actually said that. They said... <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> no, it wasn't you. But uh, someone actually said 60% really means 85%, right? So I, I think that's fair. It's a high. It's a high. It's a high majority. Right. So, but if you actually read the content of the article, segregation is talking about a very specific thing. It's talking about where people are living, mm -hmm. that the that there should be Arab communities and Jewish communities, mm -hmm. that 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 a goal should not be to have mixed communities of of Jews and Arabs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you get into the nitty gritty, when they talk about workplace environments, for instance, mm -hmm. there is no budge whatsoever from previous years of you know Jews and Arabs are basically okay working in the same mm -hmm. environments. That's not an issue. And when it comes to intermarriage. Almost no one from both communities thinks that that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. So those two things, in terms of familial life and work life, there's been little movement, if any, mm -hmm. right? Really, the movement that's been has been sharing neighborhoods within within right within the neighborhoods. Okay. And of course, they were quick to attribute that to last year's riots and violence that we experienced over the mm -hmm. over the war leading up to it. Um, well, I, yeah. I would say that was a piece of the conflict. I would look at last year's flare-up as having many different components. One was just like the familiar rockets from Gaza and responses, etc. Uh, one was the Jerusalem Sheikh Jarrah issue. 
And the third was this kind of flare-up of like urban violence in places like Lod and Akko, Batyam, etc., where you had Israeli Jews and Palestinians fighting in these cities. And I think one of the things that was made very clear uh, to a lot of people, if it wasn't clear already, is that there's really no such thing as an Israeli Arab. It's a lie that we tell. Like there are Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, but for the majority of Israeli society, when you talk about who is an Israeli, they mean the children of Israel. They mean the Jewish people. They don't mean that guy. And they don't relate to them in the same way. Meaning Israelis, by and large, feel a sense of connection with each other that they don't share with Palestinians of Israeli citizenship. Like that's not shared. Right. Like even the the idea of being able to walk up so, to a complete stranger and berate them for something they're doing with their kid <laughs> does not translate over to Palestinians. Correct. Right? That, like something we only do to Jews. Right? Yes. It's a very Israeli thing to do, but only to other Israelis. Israelis. Only to yeah. other like real Israelis. And I, and I think we have to be honest about that because we can't correct our relationship until we're honest about our relationship. Yeah, so I think this really goes to the heart of what it means when people say Israeli, right? right. Because so, so, so let's start from like the hyper Western paradigm, like a super Western thinker right. looking at Israel would okay. say there's this democratic national governmental entity called Israel right. and that governmental entity has citizens. Right. Just like America has citizens, just like Germany has We have citizens. That's a certain legal status. Right. And it doesn't matter if that person with legal status is an Arab or a Mexican right. or a Jew. It doesn't matter. They all have the same legal status and that's it. Right. That's the end of the definition. Right. Civic right? nationalism. Right, exactly. Civic nationalism, right? right? So from that perspective, they're saying, well, what's the difference? And right. why is there so much bigotry amongst these Israeli right. citizens? Shouldn't they all just love each other and sing Kumbaya, right? So the reality is, as we know, that that's not true, as you just right. iterated, right? Really, they're... Right, On either the, side. It's not the, how Palestinians feel, it's not right, how Israelis right. feel. So that's like one poll perspective, right. right? Let's go to the other poll. The other poll is there's Jews, there's Arabs. Sure. I'm just playing devil's advocate right. for like the other extreme position. The other extreme sure. position would hold that there is no such thing, and this is just a fake... It's just mm -hmm. a fake lens to which we're viewing mm -hmm. a highly polarized situation in which there's one ethnic group versus another ethnic group, and that's how they see each other, and that's how they're always going to see each other. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, this civic... Uh, label that we're placing on things is just an attempt to like you know it's, cover it, up our, the reality as right. such. It's right? a foreign imposition. But I think that the the actual reality, and this is actually supported by what we are observing in Israel today on the mm -hmm. ground, and I personally believe this is a trend, and I can go into that more. That the definition of Israeli is very much multi-layered, mm -hmm. right? It's right. It's clear and explicit. This is a Jewish state, and that was the purpose of the state. And people, you know, if a Jew shows up at Ben Gurion Airport and demands citizenship, we give it to him or her on the spot, right? And the point is, is that this whole project, mm -hmm. right, in its aspiration, again, we were just talking a second ago that the definition of that is obviously very murky, and we're still very confused about what exactly the definition is. But be it as it may, the aspiration of this project is to be a homeland for the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. That's the aspiration, right? But there's another layer to that in which there are other minorities living in this country. That is a fact. That's mm -hmm. a reality. Sure. And part of the question of running the Jewish national homeland is deciding on how it is that we deal with other types of people living yeah. in our homeland. And that's a question that's fundamental. And I think we've talked about this a lot over the years. This is a question that we've never had to deal with even in a slight way for the past 19 centuries or more how do we deal with a non-Jewish minority that's under our auspices, right? right. That's essentially the question. Because we haven't had power. Right, exactly. And now we have power. With, with power brings these, brings these questions. Right. And I think, as you said, I think that, and I think that many on, and Brett, I was going to point this out, that one of the questions in this survey was, 
Um, do you identify with this statement? This is the statement. Uh, someone who considers himself a member of the Palestinian people can be an Israeli citizen. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that statement or not? I do. Oh, I do. So in this survey, right, right, many more Jews, excuse me, excuse me, the opposite, many more Arabs agree with that statement than right. Jews. Right. Right. I agree with the statement. Yeah. So, so according to this definition that we're dealing with now, mm -hmm. right, and we have to be very, very subtle when we talk about these things because it's not an issue of second class or first class. It's that there, there is a layer of Israeli mm -hmm. citizenship which is equal across the board. Or, yes, would you agree with that? It, it's not, but it could be. Meaning it's not today. It's oh, you're not. saying the reality. The reality no, no, no. Yeah, I'm saying, the I'm saying in, th right in theory, in right. theory, it should be equal across the board. Right? I, I That's think, one layer. But there's another layer, which is saying, listen, if this whole project is in order to be a homeland for the Jewish people, mm -hmm. and you're not a Jew, mm -hmm. by, by, right, by your own definition, mm -hmm. so, okay, that, that puts you in a certain position vis-a-vis -vis the state apparatus. That's okay. just the reality. So, so I would right? say this. I would say, first of all, if you're hearing me correctly, I'm, I've been saying two things. Number one, I'm saying that in terms of status, rights, access, benefits, there should be equality, right? In terms of what citizenship means and what citizenship grants a person, right? There should be equality. But that doesn't mean the word Israeli is ever going to be applied to a Palestinian or anybody else in the same way that it's applied. You're saying we need to fix our terms, first Psychologically. Of all. Yeah. Like I'm saying, psychologically, when we talk about who is an Israeli, we mean the children of Israel. Yeah. Right? That's who we mean. Now, does that mean somebody who's not, who, somebody who doesn't fit that definition should have less rights, <laughs> less access, less of a place in society? No. Right? And, and I think it, part of it is the terminology. We have to untangle our terminology. And I think that both Jews and Palestinians have many layers of identity. Okay, um, And we can have a shared layer of identity, whatever you want to call that. We, you can call it Israeli. You can call it Palestinian, by the way. That might be a shared a layer of identity. Yeah. It, it could be the word Palestinian could be a shared identity yeah. that we have. It could be something. Back during the sentence... Right. Second Intifada, people were pointing out that Arafat was born in Egypt, and okay. uh, and what's his name, uh, the prime minister at the time, Sharon, Sharon, <laughs> Ariel Sharon had on his birth certificate Palestine. Okay. People were just pointing that out. I mean, it's, it's it, it it's, could it's, be it's, Semite. Right, it's possible. We, yeah, we we could share a, an yeah. identity called Semite, meaning yeah. there there could be a shared layer of identity that we can build on, without compromising on the other layers of our identity that are important to us right so i think sides. i think i think it's this, again going back to this all or nothing approach of saying either it's all a civic nationalist identity right. or it's all a religious ethnic right. identity and that's the wrong approach when you're dealing with any national entity that's just that's just the wrong way to go so, about so it I'm, there are always there are always these multi-layers going going around i just want to throw out some numbers to you just to just to highlight this point Today, in the state of Israel, right, 27% of mm -hmm. those um, that are enlisted in Sherut Lumi, a national service, are Arabs. Mm -hmm. That's a much higher over-representation from their overall percentage in mm -hmm. society, okay. right? And this is growing dramatically from previous, from previous years. Um, also, enlistment in the army is growing. All these, all these factors and indicators of, of Arabs willingly and wanting to be part of the state functioning... I think that these are very, very important signs that it's, it's, very, um, it's very foolish for us to ignore them. It's important for us to see them for what they are. It could just be opportunists that are looking for, you know, looking to, you know, further their personal position. But I think that it speaks to something that it's, it's just, there's more of a comfort well, and a willingness let, let, let to participate. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. If it's coming from opportunism, if it's coming from Palestinians who happen to have Israeli citizenship, um, seeing opportunities for individual upward mobility in Israeli society, is that something we should support? 
Or is that something we should oppose? Well, Meaning, I think, I'll, I'll tell yeah. you the truth. When I hear, when there are Palestinians like on the pro-Israel circuit, talking about how great Israel is and using very Western arguments for like, how Israel is so great, I don't trust them. Like, I don't trust them as sources of information. I don't trust them to really represent their people. Like, I'm much more comfortable with Palestinian voices that are very critical of Israel and will call things out that we need to think about and change. So, so again, I think that that depends what exactly their argument is. If they're saying, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a secular person who appreciates Israel for the freedoms and, and uh, you know, liberal society that it offers, I hear your point. Mm-hmm. But if, conversely, the person says, I identify as a proud Palestinian mm-hmm. and... I have strong connections to my religious community and to my family and to my tribe and all that. And yet still, I appreciate Israel for what it does for me and the opportunities that it gives me and my family. And that's a very different argument. Well, I'm not ar- sure argument. we're really hearing that. that. That second one, I don't think we really hear so much. Really? I'm not sure that really exists. I think people like Muhammad Kaiba, I think that uh, Yusef Haddad, I think that they put forth that argument pretty explicitly. And, you know, and they certainly go all over the world you know, espousing that position. I think that... You're saying you're 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 hesitant. Um, yeah, I'm saying I'm. Suspicious. You're skeptical. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah, surprised because I I actually honestly until we start being what we came home to be, um, I don't really trust any Palestinian who speaks too highly of the state of Israel as an entity. They might like these Jews or those Jews. They might feel comfortable with this you know group of Israelis or that group of Israelis. But I think the state of Israel as it exists now, as it's structured now as it deals with the other now is not something I could see any self-respecting minority population here, except for the Druze, actually feeling comfortable with. And, and I think... Why are the Druze okay, an exception? Because, because the Druze, we have a unique relationship with. It's actually a much more tribal relationship. Like they are an ally in a very authentic, organic way. And I think that's maybe a model for what our relationship with the Palestinians can be meaning we would like to have a relationship where we are allies, uh, where we respect each other, where you know we care about what's important to one another, but we're not the same. We're not the same identity and we're not all getting kind of laundered in this like one size fits all civic national identity. Like we are us and they are them and we're living in this land together and we are equals and we are allies and, and we'll come to so each other's I'm to- aid. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you on that. I just I just think that it's a little I think it's a little um, overly pessimistic to think that if someone is going is going on is going on and you know espousing the virtues of Israel that that's that that's because because from. they value something that is inherently fake and you know. Uh, you know, superficial. I hear you. I uh, but, I understand but, that there but are I'd certain. Like to, el- I, I'd like yeah. to revisit this Haaretz poll for a second. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, because first of all, I think it has to be contextualized properly, and I and I don't trust Haaretz to contextualize it properly. <laughs> Meaning, w- when I look at a poll like that, when I see Haaretz publishing something like that, what I hear them trying to say is, "Look how racist Israeli society is." Now, I think we have to be honest and acknowledge that the vast majority of Israeli society is not coming at this from a place of racism. They're coming, it, it, the way racism is understood in, in a Western context, I think it's very problematic anytime we try to superimpose like Western political or social framings onto the state of Israel. Yes, yes, agreed. Uh, I think most Israelis are experiencing Palestinians as an enemy population that we wish wasn't here. That, that's how most Israelis feel because we've been fighting them for 102 yes. years and they've been fighting us for 102 years. And, and that's the way... So that's why I brought up these other numbers in, when it talks about in the same, in the same, in the same survey about, about, about the willingness to work in the same, in the same, uh, mm-hmm. in the same workplaces and, cl- and, 
and collaborate on other things. I think, I well, think they that have that's just... experience doing that. They've experienced doing that. But at the end of the day, I think that... Yeah, well, if you're a diehard racist, you don't want to have any interaction right. with, the, with, the, you know, with the inferior race. You know, no, you don't, you don't, it, it's not coming from yeah. a place of racism, but it is coming from a place of ethnic beef. And it is coming from a 100 and, at least 102 years of conflict. And that experience has, has meant something different in the Israeli and Palestinian experiences. Meaning that, and, and we've talked about this before, I think it's contextualized very different. I think Israelis experience it as a conflict between two rival nationalisms, and I think uh, Palestinians experience it as a, an anti-colonial struggle. But at the end of the day, there's over a century of conflict. And, and again, I don't think it's limited to one sector of Israeli society. I think one thing we see when you see a number like 60%, which I think we both agree is probably yes, much yes, higher. Yes, significantly higher. We're, we're talking about... I think the majority of Israeli society really looks at Palestinians as an enemy population we wish wasn't here. Now, there are different ways to respond to that. You know, like, for example, uh, some people respond to that through supporting a two-state solution, right? If we can get rid of the land under the feet of a lot of those Arabs, then suddenly we'll have less of them, right? And, yes. And we're not connected to that land anyway because, you know, of whatever. Because we see ourselves as just Europeans who happen to be in the Middle East or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, th that, that's area. one approach. Yeah. Another approach for those who are more connected to their identity and to their homeland and are not willing to compromise on it is to say we need to drive these people out of here, right? Or go and, and make them afraid of us in, on Jerusalem Day, on Yom Yerushalayim or whatever. And I, I just thought, you know, this is, again, we're having this conversation in the wake of Yom Yerushalayim and a lot of liberal Zionist critiques of that parade. Um, and like, let's be honest, at the end of the day, these liberal Zionists are critiquing the teenagers at the flag parade from their segregated communities yes, yes, on, on sure. what used to be a Palestinian village. <laughs> Meaning like, 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 who are you fooling? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, what's bothering you is not that you care about the Palestinian. What's bothering you is the behavior of those teenagers reminds you of our neighbors and you don't want to be that. Meaning when you look at our political map from Meretz to Otsma, there is an attitude towards Palestinians that is shared. The difference is the difference in how uh, different sectors of Israeli society respond is not determined by how they feel about Palestinians. It's determined by how they see themselves as Jews, how they understand their own identity, and how they understand the right way to deal with such a problem. Meaning, some people will approach this problem uh, from the perspective of what's politically correct and socially acceptable in 2022 in the Western world. And some will come and approach this within the context of, well, what did our ancestors in the Tanakh do? What does the Halakha say, right? Like, there, there are different ways of dealing with the problem. Uh, and I think the solution is not for one of those camps to win over the other. I think the solution is actually for us to try to change the role Palestinians play in the Jewish story, in the Israeli experience, so we can actually find ways to turn them into allies. And I think it's actually, ironically, or not ironically, I think it's actually those who are more connected to Jewish identity, who express themselves very much like our neighbors, and who say things that embarrass the liberal Zionists in Tel Aviv, who are more, more equipped, position, more equipped, yes. definitely yeah. more in a position, more equipped to yeah. be able to be real peacemakers, and right. to be able to actually reconcile with the Palestinians and in this conflict, because they would do it as like another yeah. regional tribe and not as pretentious Westerners. It's like the well-known quip from Rabbi Menachem uh, Fruman, who, uh, 
who commented on Oslo when he was speaking to a Palestinian colleague. Speaking that, to Sheikh Yassin what? from Hamas. He was speaking to Sheikh Yassin yeah. from Hamas. So he said that right, Oslo was my heretics and your heretics signing a piece of paper. Right. Right. So, so I yes, I think that there's a lot to that. Um, I would think that there's many on the Palestinian side that are also coming from a very, very westernized paradigm and that, and that they're trying to like play the game, so to speak, to mm -hmm. try to court the favor of whoever they're trying to court the mm -hmm. favor of. But yes, I hear, ultimately, if there's, going to, if there's going to be any progress with this, it has to come from the paradigm of deeply, deeply resonating with our true identity and not trying to sulk away from that. I think that that's uh, ultimately, the, ultimately at root. Right, and I think that creates more room to actually change the role Palestinians play in that story. Meaning, I think the more connected we are to our true identity and uh, to our true history, um, the more space there becomes for us to have a different kind of relationship with the Palestinians that's much more healthy and much more productive than if we're stuck in the old Zionist paradigm, which is, to a certain extent, a colonialist paradigm. Yes, yes. I mean, it was even... It was even, uh, it was even uh, touted as such during during the early time. I mean, this was the language that they that they had in order to describe what they were doing. Right. But it but wasn't just language; it, it was also it, methodology. It was also methods of land acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning that there are things that that Zionism. We have to confront this. You know, I'll tell you, I relate to the Tanakh as Nivuah. not just Nivuah once upon a time, but Nivuah for all time. Meaning that we had thousands of prophets walking around this country in ancient times, but the only prophecies that made it into our Tanakh are the ones that are relevant for every generation. And you just have to know how to receive it. And when you see us first entering our land, when you see the stages of us developing our civilization, taking possession of this land, you see our first three kings. You see Shaul, David, and Shlomo. And I think each one of these three is giving us a prophetic message about a stage of our liberation, right? Shaul is Zionism. Shaul is focused on the material well-being of the Jewish people, the unity of the Hebrews, the security of the Hebrews, not really thinking about higher aspirations, the purpose of Israel in history, Beit HaMikdash, none of those things, right? David is like the national religious. David is like the guy from Merkaz or the Mechina Neli, or, you know, he's, he's looking for like Malchut Israel, he's looking for Beit HaMikdash, like the, the people who try to ascend the mount, even though I don't think it's time yet. Like, that's David, right? But the Shlomo stage is the universalist stage, where we start to focus on what, it's not just about our narrow nationalism or even our higher aspirations, according to our own story, but how are we going to benefit the rest of humankind? And only Shlomo can build the Beit HaMikdash. Right. Meaning like that comes when there's a paradigm shift from us, from within us. And if you look at the end of Sefer Shmuel Bet, you see one of the last things David does before the transition to Shlomo, very interesting, is he addresses and tries to correct the crimes of Shaul against the Givonim. Mm. Meaning that he actually is willing to confront and address the crimes of Zionism against the non-Jews living in our country, right? And only when David does that can we transition to the Shlomo stage. So, it, so if we're going to bring this to our generation, to our chapter of history, I'd say that those of us who are the David camp, those of us who are, lack of a better term, Khardal, national religious, uh, students of Rav Kook, whatever, the, the ideological hardcore of the Jews living in the Shomron and Yehuda in the West Bank, we need to be willing to look at what Zionism actually did to the Palestinians 
and we not the Tel Avivim we and we need to work towards correcting it because that might be the key to the internal change within our society to get us to the stage of Hebrew universalism where we can actually focus on our what we have to give to the rest of humanity that's a really interesting that's a really interesting analysis I never heard it put quite that way uh, uh. I guess the one question that I would have is, you do agree that today, the people that are pointing out the quote-unquote crimes of Zionism, they're doing that with the explicit purpose of undermining the entire project. Because it's the wrong people here. doing it. Be because here's right. what happens when somebody... But it's become associated with that. That's, right. that's the problem. The problem is that critique, mm -hmm. critique of Israel in any shape or form has mm -hmm. become associated with undermining the project. Because the wrong such. people are critiquing. Yeah. Me meaning at the end of the day, he here's the problem. If a Shaul person, or a Tel Avivi, or a Zionist, starts to see, really see, the Palestinian story and their experiences under Zionism, because he has such a weak Jewish identity to begin with, and a weak connection to our story... He starts to undermine that. He'll, yeah. He's just yeah. going to be like, okay, we were wrong, we shouldn't have come here, we shouldn't have done this, let's go, let, let's, 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 we don't know what to do, where are we going to go, but we have to, maybe two states, I don't know, right? <laughs> but, but, if somebody who votes for Smotrich, right? Somebody who lives in Kirat Arba, somebody who lives in Betel, somebody who lives in Elon More, somebody who's deeply connected to the land of Israel, to the people of Israel, to the story of Israel, to the Torah of Israel, who's willing to fight, kill, and die for what he knows to be important to Jewish history and for the things we say in the Tefillot three times a day, if that person starts to look at the Palestinian story with empathy and starts to take their pain seriously and understands our contribution to that pain, the result is not the same as a Tel Avivi. The result is Shlomo. The result is Hebrew universalism. The result is moving forward. And it, again, it, it has to be real. It's, it's, it's not, in my opinion, it's not Rafroman and it's not Tagmeir and it's not uh, it's not uh, Yeshivat Haritzion and it's it's not any of the, it's not this like Westernized like liberal modern Orthodox. It has to be coming from those who are real, th those who vote for Smotrich and Ben Gvir and uh, Avima Oz, like the and maybe even Gimel and Shas. Those are the people who have to really look at the Palestinian story, look at the mistakes we've made, what we've contributed to this conflict, and and actually come out trying to correct it in a uniquely Jewish way, in a way that makes the state more Jewish, at least on a deep level. Um, and that's the, that's the work that I think really needs to be done in order to advance the Gula process. Yeah. Much Some, more than just like fighting over Harabayat. Yeah. Something that comes to mind when you, as, you're, as, you're, as you're telling me this, something you told me a number of years ago is that when we treat Yudav Shomron, Judea and Samaria, in the same way that the Americans treat Afghanistan, mm -hmm then how can you expect anyone else to look at it right. that way as well? Right. It's Your actually apropos for what we're dealing with now because this was a, a recent vote in the Knesset whether the emergency mm -hmm. powers mm -hmm. that are placed, some type of weird Frankenstein-like right. reality of like, we're there, but we're not really there, and right. Israelis that live there, they're under Israeli law, but not really, like this, this, this monster of a... <laughs> of a situation was just extended longer just mm -hmm. like it's just i think that that more than no, anything else kind of highlights what it, it wasn't it failed right, right it wasn't a highlight it, it, yeah, it, it wasn't failed extended. to pass yeah and and that's one of the crises that the bennett lapid plutocracy is facing by the way when i call it plutocracy i'm i'm, I'm not just like throwing out a word no 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 like, I, like meaning, I, I totally meaning if you look yes. at the parties I think, I think sitting that's in actually a fair label yes no the, the var did an actual study the var actually actually did a study of israeli voting patterns according to class and all of the parties 
sitting in this current coalition, the Bennett-Lapid coalition, with the exception of Ram, are parties that are supported and voted for by the wealthiest the upper, Israelis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something that they point out with Likud a lot, that, that the base of Likud is very, very much the, you know, the, the middle or lower middle class sure. of uh, Israel. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to highlight. I mean, I think we're really sitting at the cusp of uh, of political developments that are really highlighting everything that you just spoke right. about, about really being forced to come to an understanding. Right. Because it's antagonizing of, of, yeah. the contradictions in our society, yes. which is ultimately healthy, right? I mean, which will ultimately, uh, ultimately if we take them to heart, if we take them to heart, instead right. of trying to patch them up again. I think that in like this insane round of constant elections over the past two years was just really dragging it out over and over of showing well, what what exactly were the were the confusions and the conflicts at play unless it's teaching us something about the british parliamentary system of representative democracy not being the most matim not being the most appropriate for our culture same as india by the way india also has political crises based on the fact that they're still using a british colonial system um that doesn't really fit their identity yeah like we need to you know we we should obviously this country should be democratic like i think that it should be more democratic and when i say democratic i mean empowering people to influence the structures they live under Uh, but it has to be done in a way that fits our identity it can't be in a way that's alien to our identity and artificial but but i also want to add that those four elections and the political instability was from my perspective very much caused by donald trump and i think that uh, avigdor lieberman a lot of people didn't catch this but avigdor lieberman was very much functioning as an agent of trump in our political system Hmm. to stop any government from being formed that could potentially uh resist the deal of the century Hmm. meaning that trump wanted a bb gantz government he wanted gantz in there Lieberman refused to join any government that didn't include Kohol Levan, right? Because at the end of the day, and, and Trump wanted, again, this is back then, he wanted it to be a government without Bennett and without Smoltrich because he didn't want anybody in there who would have an ideological problem with his plan. And I think that's what Lieberman was trying to achieve. Uh, Lieberman, in his language at the time, was just as antagonistic towards the national religious as he was towards the Haredim. Um, and I, by the way, I think it's definitely unfair to refer to the national religious as like a sectoral private interest group. But and I think the Haredim are becoming less that. I think as they get bigger and more powerful in Israeli society, they'll naturally become less that. You know, just because they'll, you know, the majority. Right. I mean, their origins is a very uh, is a very antagonistic attitude, meaning it's us versus them type of thing. But yeah, as right. you said, as as their as their power becomes bigger, I think they'll also be forced to take on. A bigger you know broader perspective of right. politics just because that's the reality there's no way right. really out of that in any case yeah. there's so much more to say but we, we got to wrap it up yeah um it's such a pleasure having you back on the show we got to do this more often yes yes please please i know you reached out to me a few times before that and we couldn't make it happen so i'm yeah. glad that we finally did maybe we'll do a deeper dive into the current uh, political crisis sometime soon yeah or maybe yeah, next please. time when we do this we'll have a better government we'll have a government we could both be proud of let's let's hope so yeah uh, this is Yudaha Kohen, uh, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Anyone who wants to check out the show notes can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 78.